Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the entertainment option you have carefully selected. This may help alleviate feelings of uh, isolation. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting here uh, in Los Angeles, <clears throat> in Los Angeles, California, where clearly I have a cold. I'm not going to edit that out. I'm just going to leave it in. Can you can you sense my congestion? Can you feel it? Are you enjoying it? Uh, it's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, there's a lot to get to today. Busy show, uh, a big show. You might even call it uh, an entertainment spectacular. So uh, a couple of orders of business uh, right here at the top. If you would like to email the program, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. 
and if you would like to leave me a voicemail, you can do that over at the show's official website. Uh, that is uh, the address for that is otherpeoplepod.com. Very simple. And uh, also uh, on the logistical front, uh, to explain something, uh, because I've been getting some questions about this. If you would like to get access to back episodes of this program, the archives, if you will, uh, all you have to do is uh, you can do this online or better yet, just download the app. And the app itself is free. Uh, You can get it for uh, pretty much anything that you might uh, have device-wise. Your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android uh, device. You, you download the free app, and then from the app, you sign up for premium access, which is uh, it's, it's cheap. It's like $2 a month or $9 for the whole year. I believe that qualifies as a pittance. So uh, the way that it works is you get 50 episodes for free, and then you pay a nominal fee to uh, access the rest. I hope that makes sense. So also um, some good news from uh, my friends at Stitcher. There was another listicle issued this week. Uh, Don't you love listicles? And don't you love the word listicle? Uh, There was a listicle published uh, by Stitcher. They named their favorite 10 uh, book-related podcasts. And uh, this program came in at number two. I'm number two. I'll take that. I'll take number two. I don't care. Uh, Many thanks to the people at Stitcher. Uh, Also uh, worth noting that this program is now going to be available via YouTube. I just got that set up. I've been overdue on that. So if you're a YouTube person, if you uh, spend lots of time on YouTube, I have a uh, YouTube channel. You can search for me by name. I believe you just search for Brad Listy. And you can then subscribe uh, to my channel and listen to the program that way, if you so desire. Like, is that, <clears throat> is that something people do? They listen to podcasts on YouTube? <laughs> I guess so. You know, I'm not going to judge you. And uh, how is that for some updates, folks? Some electrifying logistical updates. My first guest uh, today is Victoria Patterson. I actually have two guests today. Uh, Victoria has already appeared on this program for the full hour. This was back in 2011. Today... Uh, you're going to hear us talk for just a few minutes uh, before we get on to the main event with Laura Vandenberg. Uh, Tori and I spoke way back at the beginning of this show's existence. Uh, this was episode eight, which you can access uh, via premium uh, subscription if you sign up. So her new novel, The Peerless Four, is the official November selection of the TNB Book Club. That is the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, The novel is now available from Counterpoint Press. It's a terrific book by a terrific writer, and we're proud to feature it. Uh, If you would like to join the TNB Book Club and get a new title delivered to your door every 30 days, uh, handpicked by myself and Jonathan Evison, just visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's a great thing to do, and it's a terrific deal. So, Uh, Let's get things started since we have a lot to get to. This right here, ladies and gentlemen, is my brief conversation with Victoria Patterson, and her new novel, once again, is called The Peerless Four. And also, I have to tell you, I used to go on your Twitter, but you've made it all private now. 
Well, yeah. You know, I, I my little sister started giving me shit. She's like, you know. Oh, and, really? Yeah. You know, like professionally, because I'm pretty irreverent on Twitter. and. I know. I always like yours because of the, you were with the grandmas. <laughs> with the what? The photos of all, the, I don't know, the one with the grandmas with all the photos. It was so well, great. Well, see, this is my defense. Like, I, like, all I've been doing recently is retweeting. Like, I don't even yeah, tweet. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's like the only thing I look at tweet-wise. Yeah. It's like, and then all of a sudden it was blocked. I was like, ugh. Because I can't, I'm not going to go on Twitter, you know? Oh, right. So, yeah. Well, that, yeah. I appreciate hearing that because, like, I'm, you know, that was my defense. I was like, listen, I'm just, it's not like I'm saying this stuff. I'm just curating people who are saying irreverent things. Yeah, <laughs> and the general public likes to just see your Twitter, so maybe you can undo it or something. Well, we'll see at some point. Maybe I'll, okay. maybe I'll revert. I'll go <laughs> or else pub- I'll have to go on Twitter just for your, <laughs> just to see yours. Right. I right. look at yours and like maybe a few other people, but yours I, I always enjoy because they're so odd, you know, and they're, and then, um, yeah, there's something about them that are, that's so different. Well, and weird and random and but interesting and like I can understand why people like that stuff. Well, I'm glad. To, I think you're the first person who's ever told me they actually like that. <laughs> oh heard, my god, I love it. I've heard the I've grandma heard, one especially. I was really into that one, and um, yeah. I, I, yeah. And then there I, was one you did it with drugs, and there was that one crazy guy that kept tweeting you. I don't even. Rem- <laughs> I don't even remember that. I did drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. He was like, "I want to be your friend," and all Brad Listy, and you were in Dream or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Marcus P. Davidson. <laughs> I, I think I know. I think I know who that is. Marcus P. Davidson. Oh really? Yeah. I think and then that- I went on his, and his were so weird and funny about <laughs> drugs and horrible. <laughs> Um, so it's, let's get to, let's get back to your your productivity because, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this. I was thinking about this today as I was on the internet in between like bouts of trying to write, feeling sick as we discussed before we came on the air, you know, like I've been, I have a young child, so I have the flu, like it seems like once a month, which is so frustrating. Um, but there's a part of me that, and, and this is like an increasingly strong part of me. I just go online and I find myself like looking at Twitter, which is usually dominated by publishing or looking online and reading book news just because that's what I do, right. re- reading interviews with authors. And I'm just like, wh- it bogs me down, man. Like I find myself thinking, yeah. I just texted a friend um, in yet another attempt to distract myself from what I should be doing. <laughs> but okay. I said, I said that, uh, what did I say? Let me get my phone here. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, I said honestly, uh, I'm at the point where I think that maybe to you know to write with uh, any kind of purity of thought, without intrusive uh, ego or notions of fame or whatever, uh, one should write as follows: one with no internet, and two don't write for money. Um, I don't know how you know. Uh, who knows? Yeah, how, bingo. <laughs> but I mean, really, like at this yeah, point, yeah. you know, there's so many people writing. There's so right. little money to go around. It can drive you crazy. Like, that's it. Just turn the internet off if you're really into books and writing them. And don't think about getting famous or rich from it or making even a single dime. And if it happens by accident, great. Um, is that how you do? Is that how you get books done? <laughs> yeah, I just, I really don't. I, I'm not involved in the whole um, social media at all. And I, um, yeah, so I can really focus. And I'm always reading and I'm always writing. I'm always writing, and and I'm um, really interested in the work for the work's sake, and and I try to really keep my energy there and not on anything else. And it's it's um, and I th- I think what's so interesting about your show too, your podcast is I realize no matter 
what whether you get popularity or recognition or the, all that stuff, it sort of fades anyway. So it's it's going to be about the work in the long run, and that's where it's important. The you know where the import is and where it matters the most, and and so by not thinking about those other things or really trying not to. I can hone in and, and decide what I want to do and, and, and complete, you know, my work. Well, see, now that sounds like a healthy approach. <laughs> thank you for, thank you. And for I really it. don't have time. I mean, I have two, I have two teenagers now and my life is so full. And, and the more I, if I kind of creep into reading about other writers and learn, you know, it, it can, it's just aggravating anyway. It's, it's not peaceful. Well, it's just, so. yeah, I, like, what is it that's aggravating? Because I, I truly am not competitive. Like, I'm really not like, right. oh, fuck that person. They're, pu-, you know, to me, it's, <laughs> I just get like annoyed. Like, I'm like, oh, like, but, like writers are gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I like, mean... like, I feel everyone's so damn tragic and deep. And it's like, oh, right. my God, it just gets to be too much. And like, you know, the human suffering, it's a thing. We can't avoid it. So, I mean, it's not coming from nowhere. And I don't mean to sound too ornery but you know what i'm saying like it just gets to the point where you're like in an echo chamber and it's like why would i even add to this you know right i think that's too too when you're on the internet or you're so focused on other people's voices that it's hard to really know what your voice is or what you have to say or what's important to you so So, it really helps too to to put the blinders on and really go internal and i don't think you can do that as much when I, I don't know how writers do that. I know that everybody's different, but and that there's writers that are really good at that and enjoy that sort of being out there all the time. But I can't do that. I have to really be private and alone and thinking and concentrating and, and um, figuring out what it is I have to say and why I have to say it and whether it's important or not. And, and I think, um, yeah, you can get overwhelmed by all those voices and figure and not be able to focus on what it is that you have to say okay so with the peerless four which uh mm-hmm. very pleased to feature in the tmb book club yes thank you for that. um with this book like what is it that got you you know started oh. on it what did you want to say like what when you were having your quiet moments alone uh, right. brought your mind to this and got you fixated in retrospect i realize it's because i grew up in a really sports-centered family and um and I was just happened to be reading a comic book about a high jumper named Ethel Catherwood, who was really beautiful and got all this attention because of her beauty and, and was part of this Olympics where it was on a trial basis that what first time that women were allowed to compete in track and field. So everybody was watching and it was all this pressure. And she ended up winning gold and really opening the door for other women. But after the Olympics, she became a recluse and, and Hollywood courted her and she told them to fuck off and, she um, sicked her dog on reporters, and, and so I just became really curious about her and wondering what happened, and then I started researching about women, her her teammates, and also about women in sports, and I realized um, the more I researched and, and also looked at sort of, sort of the classic sports literature, and that's out there, I realized there was really nothing. It was like a big giant hole, nothing written about women or for women, and um, so it was really, to me, it just seemed like... Uh, a no-brainer that you, I, I need to write about this, and especially because women in sports have all the um, qualities that make a really good sports story, which is the underdog status, definitely, and all that sacrifice and commitment and perseverance and all these you know things that make a great sports story are just part of the story in general of the history of women 
being yeah. included. In well, I think that, so. I think this sounds like a this sounds like a book that could be made into a great film. Is well, that, <laughs> are you hoping? That would be nice. Were you thinking of that? Because I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of like a league of their own. That's like yeah. one little precedent. I don't know if that's like is that cheap? Is that a cheap thought? Like maybe that's no, no. I didn't think about that. I don't think about that when I'm writing. I, I usually just I don't even think about that at all. But um, but yeah, I guess that that would be nice. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm yeah. just thinking, like you know, sports movies. They tend to get you know, right. You I love see. sports movies now, and, and um, yeah. Well, yeah, and, the, and these stories, you know, like they, um, I don't know. They have a certain uplift to them. There's something about like the triumph of sport, right? Which is, which is and that was part of the fun of researching too. Is I just um, really allowed myself to. I mean, I watched all the classic sports movies and and watched them again watched them with my sons and um, both sons that I have I have um they both play football so we watched all this and we watched documentaries and we and and um I just really let myself feed on on that and what is it about sports that's so compelling and and it is it's kind of um you know similar to writing in that you have maybe a moment of in the spotlight and then it's over <laughs> so what is it about <laughs> you know why do we do this and and so um it's of the whole perseverance and discipline and this thing that drives athletes. And well, it's, of- it's the ultimate reality television, I think. I mean, it, and it's, and, and I, I don't mean that in the, no, you know, I, in, in a comparison yeah. to like, you know, the Kardashians or something. I mean it uh, almost narratively. It's like narrative in right. real time with like real human stakes and people under pressure. And then there's just like the, you know, on a more visual level, there's just like the, there's something, be- yeah, of course, yeah. you know, with these people who are uh, incredible with their bodies doing all these, in, you know, amazing things. But um, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the research aspect of it, because, you know, every book requires some degree of research, which is to say reading. But I think when you're working with uh, history and you're trying to mold a fiction from that history, right. um, you know, you have a certain responsibility to go in there and get to know the historical period and the people involved and uh, so on and so forth. So was there a different process with this book than with past books uh, on that side? Um, the, what I did is I, I, like I said, I just let it go anywhere it went with in terms of sports and sports. And because I wanted the book to be a meditation about sports and all the classic sports novels, the ones that I really liked the best were also the more, you know, meditative ones. And, and um, so I allowed myself a wide wide open in terms of what I read and biographies and TV shows and but I read all the classics and um and then when I finally figured out who my narrator was and and which is she's the chaperone of the team and I figured that out just by looking at a random photo of these women um athletes and and she was off to the side and she was sort of unnamed and I realized she was the chaperone and and that that was sort of my entryway in and so once I figured that out I only read books that were written because mine takes place 1928 and earlier and a little bit after. And so I only read books that were written during that time because I didn't want it to sound modern or to slip into that modern feel. So that really helped as well. And, and I just kind of found my voice with her, with my chaperone, and and um, and then let myself um, ask all these questions that I I think because I grew up in this, this family that... Um, where sports were, so, like you said, this sort of language and way of drama and talking about current or everything. And I didn't understand it because they were always talking about statistics and football games and, 
and I was always kind of on the outside wondering why is this so important I don't get it and um, so I think it was those big questions driving me as well while I wrote it and and um, and what does it mean to win what does it mean to lose are they connected um, why does it feel so good to win why does it hurt so bad to lose what what is more important all of that stuff sort of played into it and um and so yeah it was it was different in, in that i just had some specific questions and things that i was asking that i was thinking about while i wrote it and um and reading and everything that i read for that whole period was about sports i didn't read anything else or watch anything else so what are some so of these so what are some of these meditative uh, sports novels that you i like all the Fun, interestingly, I, I like the, um, like, Shoeless Joe and um, and the baseball ones are always very sort of wistful. And and um, I did, and I ended up reading, you know, um, let's see, Don DeLillo and Underworld and um, and Norman Mailer, and, um, aren't which the, I didn't. Aren't the first hundred pages of Underworld amazing? Like, that, yeah. that, that baseball, the, the shot heard around the world, that section of underworld is just mind-blowing yeah. and you know who's really good about writing you know philosophically about sports is david foster wallace he, yes. he was one of my favorites um in his essays and so i read a lot of his work and um well yeah. that's like no like, and I, I might have even spoken about this on this show before but it was uh when he was writing about the frustration of uh, reading the tracy austin biography yeah, I love that. Be- okay. Yeah, because that makes it make Why so much Tracy sense. Why Tracy broke my heart, or what is it called? Something like that. Yeah. Why Tracy Austin broke my heart? Well, these people who are so body centered, having like no real, um, <laughs> you know, no real alphabet to Insight. kind of yeah. just describe what they do because it has nothing to do with language. It's like it's like the opposite of what we do as writers. <laughs> like. Yeah. No, it's so interesting because you do you have to have be kind of empty or vacant to be a good athlete, and we think it's so profound as as fans or as people witnessing it we think there's got to be some trick or key or big bigger meaning behind it and the, and then the interplay of that the, that the athlete um sort of needs the fan to make it something you know meaningful you know to make it to witness it um the other one that i love is a fan's notes have you read yeah Ashley, Frederick, sure yeah, i yeah, love yeah. i know that's a that's one where people either love it or hate it, but I, I think that's one of the best, better sports novels out there. Yeah, it's like really melancholy. I just I remember just oh, like, it's so great. Well, like the the the, the uh, he thinks he's having a heart attack. Like that, you know. I remember bits and pieces. Frank Gifford. Yeah, and or yeah, he's obsessed with Frank Gifford, and he's in, on the his mother's divan, divan divan. Is that how you say it? All the time with her little dog, and he's in, he's you know mentally ill and. So I think what I want to do is I just want to become vacant and I want to create a situation where I can write in front of people who cheer, cheer for me. Does that work? Oh, God, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to work. Well, one can dream and uh, yeah. I, I certainly congratulate you on this book. It's, uh, Thank it's, you. It's great to see you doing so well. And uh, again, it was fun to feature it in the book club and we'll look forward to uh, the next. Thank you. I appreciate it. I just want to compliment you on your podcast and the fact that you're you're taking the time out and, and providing this um, wonderful thing for, for so many people. I think it's really, really cool that you're doing it, and I know you're very disciplined about it as well. You know, I am, I am ruthlessly disciplined. It's military discipline over here. Well, I, wanna, I just want to make sure you know that, that we appreciate it. 
oh. we listeners like me. Do you see me like? Do you see me? Do you see I'm me? I'm a very lonely, very lonely writer. So I, you keep me company, and all your the people you interview. And well, I appreciate it. I have trouble accepting compliments, so I think I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to deflect it. But okay, uh, no, I'm not going to let you. You're yeah. going to have to hear it. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's good yeah. to hear that. That's sort of the point. And uh, again, uh, it's always it's great to talk with you. And congratulations on the book. Thank you, Brad. Nice to talk to you too. Okay, that is Victoria Patterson. Great talking with her. Uh, she's super nice. Go get her novel. It's called The Peerless Four, and it is available now from the good people at Counterpoint Press. Uh, my next guest is Laura Vandenberg. I'm very uh, excited to have her here on the program. I almost feel like it's overdue. Uh, I've been wanting to talk with her. She has a new story collection out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux uh, on their FSG Originals imprint. It's called The Isle of Youth, and it is available now and generating wildly positive critical acclaim. So here you go, you guys. This is Laura Vandenberg, and her new story collection, once again, is called The Isle of Youth. I am in Andover, Massachusetts, uh, where my husband and I just recently moved to Andover, and I'm on the second floor of our house uh, in my office, um, sitting in front of a window that overlooks a field. Okay, so wait, Andover, is that Boston adjacent? Yeah, it's Boston. It's just a little north of Boston. So we're like, we're a suburb of Boston. Okay. I I, I like Boston. I've only been to Boston, you know. Oh, Boston too. Yeah, we, I used to live in, you know, we lived in Boston for like three and a half years because I did my MFA in Boston. So it's nice to be back in the area for sure. Okay. So wait, where did you do your MFA? At Emerson College. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was there, you know, just for like a long weekend. And, and it was really random because it was like, a, it was in January, but the weather was like 50 degrees and sunny. Like we caught it perfectly. Oh, man. That's yeah. really aberrant. Yeah, that's like a sunny day in London. Right. It's already uh, pretty, pretty cold here. Yeah. So I just, and I just, you know, took the, the tea. That's, the, that's what the train is called, right? The tea, yeah. Yeah. I just took that around, wandered around. It was a beautiful city. So um, you lived previously... Uh, you, you know, you spoke of your graduate study in Boston, but you also uh, kind of recently have lived in Baltimore, and then you grew up in Florida, correct? Yes, that's right. We were in Baltimore for the last three years, and then and I and I'm from Florida. Okay, so Florida figures into the new collection in ways that it, that it previously hasn't. And um, you know, I was reading uh, online uh, an interview that you did. And you were talking about needing kind of um, temporal distance from uh, the place in order to actually see it well enough to write about it. And I found that interesting, you know, because I think that's I think that's somewhat common. I think it's hard to have perspective on a place well enough to render it in fiction uh, or maybe even in nonfiction, um, you know, when you're in it. Like if you have some time away, like you think of like James Joyce, you know, being exiled, but yet writing about nothing but uh, Ireland, uh, essentially. Uh, you know, is that that's a big factor for you? I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit about um, having that distance from Florida and how you started to kind of see it differently being away from it? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Central Florida in Orlando. I was there for my entire childhood to college there. So, uh, you know, I spent a, a good chunk, I have spent a good chunk of my life in Florida. And so when I moved away in to, to Boston graduate school, I was really ready to go. Um, and, and I was 
explore the the world at large, um, you know, both both in the, the physical sense and also in terms of the kind of fiction I was writing. So when I got to Boston and people were like, oh, you're from Florida. Florida is so weird and interesting. You can write about Florida. I was like, no, no, there's nothing interesting in Florida. I do not want to write about Florida. Um, and so... Uh, over time, you know, two things happened. I think because Florida was all that I knew in terms of place, I didn't, re- I didn't appreciate how different it is as a place. And so when I got to, you know, when I got to Massachusetts, I learned, for example, that in Boston, people do not get alligators in their backyard. <laughs> um, so things that were sort of somewhat normal for me, um, you know, in this different context, I could see how actually unusual they were. Um, or how unusual they would seem to other people. And then, uh, you know, I have a lot of family in Florida, so even though I was away from Florida, I would go back a couple times a year. And I think being able to revisit Florida as an adult, um, you know, with with some distance between sort of who I am now and who I was when I was living there, um, you know, I I was just able to finally appreciate what a bizarre eccentric, complex place Florida is. Um, I was able to sort of see the strange and interesting details in terms of the landscape that I really wasn't able to see before. So, um, so you know, gradually, gradually, it became interesting to me as, as a subject for fiction. Okay. I mean, you know, you have to, it, makes, it makes sense. You have to have something to compare it to, you know? If you don't have anything to compare it to, then it's hard to see it as being weird. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly, right, because it's all you know. And I think also, you know, South Florida and the stories in the Isle of Views that are set in Florida, um, about half the stories are set in Florida, uh, they're um, they're set in South Florida, which is actually a part of the state that I know sort of in passing. It's not Central Florida. It's the part of the state that I'm, I'm really intimately familiar with. And South Florida had a particular kind of mystique for me as a kid. It just, you know, the Everglades and Miami, which seemed like this huge, you know, metropolis compared to Orlando. Um, so I was also kind of returning to that childhood fascination with, with South Florida, which seemed much more interesting and exotic uh, to a kid from, from Orlando. Well, and okay, so a couple things. First of all, um, like bizarre violence. I feel like there's a lot of like news stories that I get on the Internet involving like really grisly homicide that, take, that mm-hmm. takes place in Florida. And, I, you know, it's Carl Hyacinth. I'm not screwing that up, am I? Like I just, yeah, I know Carl Hyacinth, yep. I feel like That's he correct. I feel like he writes um, you know, about these kinds of things or at least seems inspired by these sorts of um patterns or whatever you want to call them. But I mean, am I imagining things? I mean, that really does seem to happen a lot in Florida. Yeah, well, right. If if for anyone who's on Twitter, if you follow Florida man on Twitter, you will um who just sort of Florida man uh keeps us apprised of all the crazy news stories that are coming out of Florida and it really is just astounding. Um and I I read something and I can't remember where I read this that Florida and California have the highest population of serial killers um, in in the country. But uh, Brad, am I right? Are you in California, or am I am I, <laughs> I am. confused about that? You are. Okay, right. great. So so great great news for you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we had the whole like the face eating, where people these sort of the bath salts leading people to have these kind of like cannibalistic zombie attacks. Um, we have crazy gun laws, uh, like, you know, the now infamous stand your ground law. Uh, we, we don't know how to vote in national elections. I feel like Florida is always a state that's like holding the rest of the country up. Um, 
But, uh, but you know, much like California, it is a very large state. And, and really, you have like three different states under one umbrella um, at four different states, I would say, if, if, you're, if you're including Key West in that. Um, so like North Florida is really different from Central Florida, which is really different from South Florida. Miami is its own thing. The Keys are certainly its own thing. And so, um, and so just as, you know, moving from different parts of, you know, comparing, I don't know, like um, L.A. to San Francisco to the, the, the sort of the more deserty parts of California, uh, you know, it's, you have a lot of different worlds um, kind of contained under under this one um, umbrella that is, that is Florida. And I wonder if there's something about um, this natural sort of conflict or drama that rises from having, in some ways, so many kind of conflicting landscapes and perspectives contained of under one under one roof. Um, well, I was just going to say that. I mean, there's like quite a demographic collision in Florida, and the other thing too is like I, I don't think I heard you mention is like I feel like the Panhandle of Florida is sort of um, of a piece with the American South in the ways. Oh, absolutely. In, in, yeah. a way, in a way that the rest of Florida maybe isn't. Like even though geographically it's South, obviously, like I feel like the Panhandle and its proximity to Alabama and. Um, I have my geography right, right? It's it's Alabama. Yeah, you do. Yep. Okay, so um, I, mean, I just feel like that because I've I've been down in those in that part of the country, and you know the Gulf Coast up there in the Panhandle compared to like the Gulf Coast down towards, um, you know Fort Myers or whatever is is a different mm-hmm. beast. So. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and uh, and even you know like the cuisine is different, and much and much more southern. I mean, when you when you go up. Um, I mean, when you go up to North Florida, when you go up to the Panhandle, people have the southern accents. The food is more, more traditionally southern, and you really start to lose that southernness the more south you go. And why is that? I have no, I don't, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I think in some ways. Well, I mean, I guess in a in in a in just sort of a logical way, the more south you go, the more you're moving away from. Um, you know, what we would think of as sort of the traditional deep south. So you're moving farther away from Alabama. You're moving farther away from Georgia. So I would I would assume that that has something to do with it. Um, uh, but beyond that, I, I don't really have any um, concrete theories yeah. as to why that progression exists. Because I don't hear, like, even a hint of a twang in you. I mean, does it ever come out when you get drunk or something? Like, is that... My yeah, well, my husband says he's from New England, so he thinks I actually do have a southern accent because he had never been like before he met me. He had like he had actually literally never been south of I think D.C. I don't even think he'd been that far south before. So he thinks that I do have a southern accent, and he says when I talk to my mother, who's from Nashville, who has so she's a little bit more between. She's from she's from Nashville and and lives there um, lives there now uh, that I have a southern accent. But, yeah, I don't think, and, you know, growing up, um, I, my family, you know, Florida family, no, no one has a, a southern accent. But you can really hear that when you go, when you go north. Okay. So I want to I ask you about Orlando because Orlando, um, you know, I, I have spent minimal time there. Like doing, I did a family Disney trip as a child. And, like, at the pinnacle of my awkward um, – junior high years like the braces the weird hair like my feet were way too big for my body do you know what i'm saying like i just look at those yeah. pictures. i look at those pictures and it's just like oh my god so uh that's my only experience of orlando 
And I know a couple of people who grew up there, and I think I've had a couple of people on this show who grew up there or near there. And yeah, I think. How do oh, you, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, how do you describe it? Because you know, you I obviously associated in my mind with Disney World, and I'm sure that was you know at least some sort of you know factor in your concept of it as a child. But um, it, it was also home. And does it have like a distinct cultural identity, or is it just? Is it as like uh, you know, uh, gray and difficult to define as it is for me? <laughs> is, is is it the same way for you as it is for me, or no? I think I think yes, somewhat. I, I actually find Orlando nearly impossible to describe, um, which is probably one of the reasons why it would be very difficult for me to write about. And I think again, just because that's where I'm from and that's where I lived for you know twenty plus years. Um, I don't have as much perspective on Orlando as I do for other parts of the state, but it really is this, it has to me this weird sort of placelessness. And I do have, um, I have a hard, I would have a very hard time describing exactly sort of what is the culture. There's a part of central Florida that certainly you associate with Disney, um, and kind of, you know, very like corporate commercial America. Um, there's a part of Orlando that. Um, I, I think of it as being very affluent, um, you know, lots of country clubs and golf courses and big houses. Uh, uh, to me, it's in some ways sort of emblematic of suburbia uh, or, you know, there's just like a phenomenal amount of sub- subdivisions in, in Orlando. And also there's sort of a seedy side of Orlando, too. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of strip malls and strip clubs and dive bars. So there's that, there's that side of it too. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of the few parts of the state that's, that's really landlocked. Um, so I think some people, when they hear I'm from Florida, they're like, oh, you was just grown up on the beach. But in fact, for us going to the beach was sort of a special treat because we were over an hour, um, from water. Uh, there are, you know, tons of lakes in Orlando, many of which are, many of which are man-made, um, but, but yeah, so, so I sort of, it's kind of, it's like a concrete swamp, uh, with no, with no ocean. <laughs> make, that's sort of how, like, you, I think of Orlando. You make, you make it sound so alluring. <laughs> I know. I make it sound, don't you want to move there right now? Don't you want to move to that? Yeah. That concrete swamp. And um, it's, it's sweltering and you can have an alligator in your backyard. Come yeah, on down. Right. Right. Come on down. Yeah. It's totally sweltering. Actually, one of my favorite places in, um, in Florida, which is relatively close to Orlando, is Gatorland, which is such a Florida thing to go to Gatorland. And it is exactly what it sounds like where you go and you see alligators doing what, you know, alligators do. See, that sounds fun to me. Like, I like, this is the thing about it, because my folks are from the South and uh, Louisiana and, uh, you know, I grew up going down there. But like, regardless of that, whenever I travel somewhere, like, I like that kind of weird, like, local um, kind of folksy cultural stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, too. Yeah. I actually, I didn't really like it as a kid, but now I love it. Right. Me, too. I think I'm, a th- I'm the same way. I think there was a period of my life where I'm like, a swamp tour? Who wants to go on a swamp tour? And now I'm like, that's really all yeah. I want to do. <laughs> right. Yeah, that actually sounds kind of amazing. I very much I want to go to Gearland right now. But, yeah, I think when I was a kid, I was sort of like a little like bored and just sort of like vaguely horrified by it. Um, my parents have, uh, my mom actually has this funny story about how when I was a little girl, I would, um, but you know, like when I was teeny tiny before I even knew, uh, what 
the Northeast was, I would point to like New York and Boston on a map, and I would say, I want to go live there. Uh, so, so that that whole sort of Florida culture was something that you know I was kind of eager to get away from as as a younger person uh, and to go go north. And my perception was that like the north was where things kind of happen. But um, but again, you know, with age and with distance down, like oh man, Florida's kind of awesome, <laughs> right? Uh, isn't it? And isn't Gatorland, it Gatorland is awesome. But you know what? Isn't it funny? I feel like that's kind of something that's innate in people because I was similar. Like I was gonna go someplace. And I had the itch to travel. I still have it, um, though it gets more difficult. Like you know, once you start having children, uh, especially young children, to to move around. Like being in a in a car for a long road trip sort of loses its romance. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, even from a young age, you're like pointing at a map and plotting your escape. And then there are other people I think who are completely content to stay in the same town for their whole lives. Absolutely. And there's, Absolutely. There's yeah. a, there's a part of me that envies them for their rootedness and their. Um, you know, they're hurried to be in a hurry kind of thing or mm-hmm. their, their lack of, yeah. their lack of that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's great to not, uh, I, I, I actually envy that too. It, it's not the way I'm built at all. I think I have a very sort of fundamentally restless personality where I'm always wanting, you know, um, I'm always wanting to kind of go and see new things, uh, in, in, in one way or another. Um, and so, so it's in some ways, you know, I, I, of course, like to feel settled and like to feel rooted, but I almost, it almost like freaks me out to feel a little, a little too rooted. Um, and that kind of, you know, that sort of restlessness or, or wanderlust kicks in. But I think that to be free of that in some ways would be, um, would be really nice. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm the same way. I grew up kind of moving around and I've now been in Los Angeles for a long time and I'm like sort of attached to the idea of just like putting down stakes here and just being like, this is where I'm from, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but, I claim it. Yeah. yeah, but who's you know? We'll see if it happens. So, um, you know, what were you like growing up? I mean, as a child, were you precocious? Were you writerly and readerly from the get go? Um, if you were already plotting your escape to the Northeast as like you know a six year old, were you already plotting your first novel too? You know, here's so here's the funny thing. I was not. I, I don't really think I was a precocious child. I was very, very shy in a lot of ways, and very socially shy. And I had very few friends. Um, I, um, I I think now, if you met me now, because I'm not at all like a shy adult, that would be sort of you know. I was going to say. Me, I was going to say you but, sound. You uh, sound. You sound completely outgoing uh, over the phone. Yeah, I, right. I, I am. Um, and I'm sort of, you know, kind of a classic extrovert in some ways where I just, I love like to be around people and I'm very social and um, sort of, I think, a little unusual for a writer in that regard. Uh, you know, I mean, we have, to, I have to work in isolation because it's the only way I, for me at least, to get the work done. But, you know, but it's like the isolation that it takes to write is like all the isolation I can bear. Um so, so, so I really do, you know, like to be out in the world and like to be out with other people. But yeah, I was very shy as a child, um, and I had sort of an unusual path to writing in that, um, for various reasons, uh, had, had pretty rocky adolescence and did not graduate from high school, and ended up taking night classes, um, and that's how I did my undergraduate. So. I, um, you know, I was in... What happened? You said, oh. like, you had a rocky adolescence? Like, were you a a, a problem child? Or, I mean... Did I you... was, yeah. I was a bit of a problem child. And I also really hated school. I hated high school. 
um, I, I can't, I don't even know what it was, but it just, I think, you know, I was having, you know, I was having some social problems. And so I convinced my parents to let me get a GED and, and go to night school. And um, somehow, you know, they were, they were able to get, they were able to get on board with this. And so as a result, I actually, I read very little in, in high school. Um, I was, I was like obsessed with Kurt Cobain. I feel like I was just kind of on, <laughs> you know, the tail end, um, of the grunge. So I think I read like, like some sort of Kurt Cobain, you know, biography like seven times. Uh, but you know, I didn't, I didn't really which, read. Which by the way, which by the way would comfort any parent. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of my parents are like, whatever you want, as long as you want to stay in school in some capacity, we will, yeah, we, we're, just, we're like on board with just this. Please um, keep reading this biography of this suicidal yes, heroin addict, please. Right. And I'm like, maybe I'll be like Courtney Love when I grow up. And they were like, oh my God, what, what have we done? Where have we gone wrong? Um, so, so anyway, so I, so I arrived at school. Um, and so school for me was interesting because I, I was in, um, I was in a, a, a small liberal arts college in Florida, but I was in the, the night school division. And so all of my peers were way older than I was, but by and large, many of them were, um, people who were, you know, sort of returning to complete their, um, their undergraduate work. So, so non-traditional students in one way or another. And I had, I read very little, I'd written nothing. Um, and I arrived thinking, you know, I wanted to major in psychology. And I think that was sort of the default major when you're like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, when it's like, I have problems and I'm sort of interested <laughs> in other people's problems. So maybe this would be I'm, like, I'm, maybe I'm, this would be a good thing. Hey, I'm thinking of doing it right now. I'm on the verge. Well, man, here's the thing that. I did not factor in, which is uh, you have to do math in a psychology major. It's a it's a social science. Mm. Um, so for me as a student, like student, two things, and maybe math would not be a problem for you, but it was definitely a problem for me. Um, two things converge, and the first thing is that uh, I um, took a creative writing class. I was like failing my statistics class, and then I took a fiction workshop as an elective sort of with the mindset that, um, you know, oh, this will be like an easy A and I desperately needed to improve improve my GPA. And in that class, for the first time ever, I read a contemporary short story. I read um, like Amy Hempel in the cemetery where all Jolson's buried. I read um, Laurie Moore, Jim Shepard. And I had as you know, I mean, as close to I think I would ever come to having like a religious experience where to me, I, I had no idea that this kind of literature was out there. And it was a vision of the world that I recognized. It was a voice that I recognized written in like a language that I recognized. And I was just like, I have, I don't know what this is, but I have to find a way to, to do this. Um, and sort of that's how I came to, came to fiction. So it was just, and it was a, an English class you said? It was, yeah, it was a fiction workshop. Okay. Um, so I was, I was also starting to write then, but uh, you know, I, I didn't yet know I was, I was only writing because like I had deadlines and I had to turn in stories. I don't think I really yet knew that I was interested in, in writing fiction, but it was the reading aspect of the class. I'm sure my stories were just god awful. Um, but it was the reading aspect that we did give for the workshop that just like had such, you know, really like a life altering effect on me. See, this is interesting because <clears throat> it seems like a really concentrated period of time uh, that formed you. You know, like this this period of your adolescence where you leave high school fascinates me. 
because that's a big leap to make, you know, like, and then you get into, then you, then all of a sudden you're in a college setting. Uh, even if it is night school, you're still in a room with a lot of people who are significantly older than you. And you must've felt like a fish out of water. And then all of a sudden you're reading Amy Hempel, uh, and Lori Moore and your mind is blown and that's kind yeah, of the rest is history. Absolutely. So the, yeah, and I really did like just I needed something I could connect to so badly. I, I think I was, I'm just so grateful that I found it at that particular time. So what okay, so like just so I can get like a better understanding. Like when you were in high school and you were said you were having social problems, like were you like gothic in temperament? Was there lots of like dark eyeshadow? Were you de- like clinically depressed? Like, what was it that made you want to leave like so badly? Do you- um, yeah, I was. I definitely struggled with some some depression issues in high school. Like for sure, as many high school students do. I think for me, I just sort of for some reason my, in my makeup, I just didn't. You know, I feel like there are a lot of high school students who like suffer, but then sort of suck it up and you know go on down the road. And for me, it was just you know it was just not something I was sort of equipped to deal with at the time. And yeah, socially it was really tough. Um, and I was kind of like, I almost wish that I had had a stronger identification, like I am one of the goth kids, or I am one of like the stoners, or I am one of, um, or I'm one of like the super nerds or something. But I actually think it, w- it would have been easier for me if I'd had a pack that I could identify, but I was very isolated and I was sort of between groups, like... I wasn't, like, quite bad enough to be with, like, the really bad kids, and I wasn't quite goth enough to be with the really goth kids. I mean, I think I was, like, sort of somewhat goth, but not, like, quite, not quite full-on, you know, Marilyn Manson goth. Um, So as a result, I was just really isolated. Like, I went through this horrible patch where I would eat lunch in the bathroom by myself, like, every day. Um, so I was very, very isolated, uh, and I think that was a, a big part of my problem, and probably part of the reason why I like being around people so much now. Right. You know, I think um, when you when you grow up not having friends, you take that thing, that kind of thing, for granted a little bit, a little bit less. Well, now and nowadays, when you're eating lunch in the bathroom, you're with people. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a yeah, a whole, a whole group of us. So right. So it's like I like you know I like having like a pack now because that was something that I never, I never had when I was younger. I think that's fascinating because you seem so charming. Um, you know, uh, in per- I've met you in person uh, once, like briefly at AWP, and then obviously over the phone. Um, you've got all this like life and energy, uh, and then I have a daughter who's young, so of course like my mind is now like pressing fast forward into adolescence and like, you know, that transition, uh, can take all sorts of different, uh, shapes. It's, it's just strange to me how people grow up and develop. Do you understand what I'm saying? I I totally understand. And right. And you can take comfort if heaven forbid your daughter has some difficulty to like, they can, you know, it's this weird sort of like they can go through it and they can come out like a, like a fine, you know, a fine, a fine adult. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, it is really, it's, it is strange. It's strange for sure. And I think for me, um, I was really self-conscious about this for a long time. Like, this is the kind of thing, if we were doing this interview, I think even like five or six years ago, I never would have offered up this information. Um, it took me, because I think I had just, I missed so many, um, and I teach undergraduates now, so sometimes like I, I think about this, and actually my um, husband and I, for a fellowship he got, are, are living on a boarding school campus. So being around students, um, you know, you're constantly reminded of these sort of these like markers, like um, 
I don't know, just, you know, things, people like rushing in college, not that I think I would have rushed if I had an opportunity, but just, or going to like formals and stuff like that, that I, um, I missed. And so I was very self-conscious about, um, it for a while. And then I sort of got to the point where I was like, actually like no one cares what you did in high school because like everyone was totally screwed up in their own way. Um, and just, it's so long ago that like, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. People forgive it. And plus I should also add that, uh, you know, this, this is actually a mark of distinction on an artist's uh, biography. Like the fact that you found uh, high school intolerable, uh, you know, oftentimes I think that that's kind of like a mark of genius or perceived genius, you know, where people are like, yeah. she was too smart I for don't... school. She had to get out of there and just read Amy Hempel and like be with her people. Yeah, right. I was like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing this math and science stuff. Like I'm just not doing it. Right. Um, and I think that that is that's something like dispositionally that's um, like a lot of my teachers thought I had ADD because I couldn't, I wouldn't sort of concentrate on anything. And I do think, um, I think that I, I like, since as an adult, I like, definitely do not have ADD, uh, but but I do think I'm sort of built in a way where it's like if something has my attention, if, if it's something I'm really interested in, it has my complete attention. And if it's something I have no interest in, it, it, is, it is very difficult for me to kind of hone in on it, even if it's something I know that I should hone in on or need to hone in on for practical reasons. So, um so yeah, so there is, I, I've just never been good in situations where I sort of, I have to do something that I'm not particularly interested in, in doing, which basically is what I, being in high school is to a large degree. Well, sure. And, and your folks, uh, they sound, you know, that they were understanding enough to kind of let you go make the leap, which not all parents would have done. Some parents I think would have said, suck it up or we're too scared to let you depart for fear that you won't go to college or whatever it is, you know, but yeah. um, like, how did they handle it? And and are they artistic in temperament, either of them? So did, did you have kind of any kind of touchstone uh, parentally? Um, they are, they are, I think in some ways, artistic in temperament. They're not, um, they're not artists in the traditional sense. Um, my dad was, he's retired now, but he was an attorney and he's, he is a beautiful writer. Um, like if you read his briefs, he writes beautiful letters. So even though he's never written um, creative work, like he does have a sort of a gift of um, written expression, you could say. And then my mother uh, was um, there is uh, she owned a successful business for um, many years and also designs jewelry. So she is artistic in, you know, in, in that sense. Um, but I was really lucky with my parents because they, I, I, you know, I have so many friends who, when, you know, they came home and announced like, I'm going to be a writer. Their parents were horrified and they're like, what are, what? Like you're wasting your education. You'll never make any money. You know, what, what are you, you know, how is this going to work? But my parents were really excited and they thought it was great. And they sort of always had the mentality, if you want something for it, if you want something badly enough and you're willing to work hard enough for it and to be, they, they, they always really emphasized work ethic. If you were willing to never give up, to be dogged, to be determined, um, you know, that was that was what was going to get you to your goals. And I think that that's something that's, you know, at an early stage served me really well on, on the writing front. Like my dad has this saying that he would chat out for me and my um, my younger sister, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Uh, so that was sort of, you know, that was his perspective in terms of just like the value of hard, hard work. Um, 
and even though they weren't, you know, speaking ex- explicitly about, you know, writing, uh, I think that's something that as an artist, you really have to have that tenacity. It's easy to forget, you know, but I mean, I, I think like if you read enough literary biography or, uh, you know, in my case, if I'm talking to writers uh, for this show and, and hearing about how they do the work and how they work through struggles and, um, you know, got to where they are, uh, you know, a, a, a consistent work ethic, uh, even and especially in the face of, um, you know, difficulty is a common thread. Yeah, Absolutely. So, and I remember I, I th- something else I read with you uh, online in preparation for this was that you claim the honey badger as your spirit animal. <laughs> oh, I love the honey badger. The honey badger is awesome. I make my students watch that video all the time, and they're like, "What does this have to do with fiction?" And I'm like, "It has everything to do with fiction." <laughs> yeah. So, so the honey badger is sort of like I mean that that seems like of a piece with. Uh, work ethic and when the going gets tough, like the, just the tenacity. Yeah, you have to keep like tearing the heads off cobras and, That's you know, as, as a honey badger does. <laughs> I like that. And okay, so uh, are you type A? Are you super organized? Do you make lists? Um, I, I My organization is very selective, I would say. There's a very, I do make lists. Um, I find lists calming, actually. Like it kind of rattles me if I know that there's, I don't have the greatest memory, so it sort of rattles me if I know that there's a lot of stuff I need to do and I'm trying to hold it all in my in my brain. Um, so to commit it to paper, even if I don't end up doing half the stuff on the list, I actually just I find it sort of soothing. So I do make lists, and in some ways I think I'm very organized, and then in other ways I'm not organ I'm not organized at all. So it's it's really it's it's selective. Okay. Do you write down your goals or do anything like really hardcore like that? No, I okay. don't believe stuff like that. You don't like ta- I, tack them on your wall and like look at them. No, yeah, I think that's a little too like, I don't know. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm t- I think I'm like a little too cynical to do stuff like that, you know? I, You know what I used, um, to, I used to actually, I got a cop to it. I used to try to do that just because I felt like if I wrote them down on a piece of paper that, that I would externalize them and then I would have to look at them and they would mock me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I think it's 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 like my own you know, my own like limitations, I wouldn't be into doing something like that, but it does, you know, it makes absolutely perfect sense for yeah. sure. Well, I no longer do it. I've since slid into deep cynicism and like, I can't bring, so, I can't bring myself to do it without like chiding myself. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, I feel silly, but I think that uh, there's, there's something to be said about it. Like, just like, uh, like putting something down on paper, even if it's a list at least externalizes it because if it lives only in your head and it doesn't get done, nobody else knows. And there's no like sense of accountability, but if it's on that piece of paper, like then somehow I feel like you're more likely to get it done. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Usually if something falls on my to-do list, uh, it, it, it does, it does usually get done. If it doesn't make it on the to-do list, it could be really important because I do have sort of like a mind, like I said, it could be really important, like, uh, you know, paying like a phone bill or something. And it's like 50, 50 at best, but it, that it will, that it will get done. Um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, if I'm, it, it's, it gets, I think it's better or worse depending on how hard I'm working on a particular, um, like creative projects. So when I'm doing like hardcore novel revisions, like that is occupying all the space in my brain. Um, and I start doing like crazy things like, you know, getting on like the wrong commuter train or putting <laughs> like milk in the, 
linen closet and just like really, really crazy stuff. So, okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about how you work. Okay. Um, you get up in the morning and write, like, how did you, and, and how did you make this transition? You know, you, you're in night school, you're getting your GED. Yeah. Your mind is blown by these short stories that you're reading at that moment, whether it was really explicit in your consciousness or not, you became a writer or at least decided that this was a magic trick you wanted to learn how to do. And then, uh, from there, uh, you know, how did you get to the point where you actively started working as a you know, as a professional with the, uh, with the intent to publish? Um, I, well, I, um, so I immediately switched over my major to English slash creative writing, um, took as many, did it, and just my whole undergraduate was just all literature and writing to the extent that it was possible. Um, and where were you at? And what was your undergrad? I, um, I was at Rollins College, okay, which yeah. is in, in, in Orlando. And um, and they have a wonder, actually a wonderful undergraduate writing program there. So I really had great teachers who gave me fantastic advice. One of my teachers told me I should apply to Breadloaf. I did that, and I went to Breadloaf as a senior, which was like, like really, really blew my mind. That was very important um, for me. And then I went immediately from grad to undergrad, so I didn't take any time off in between. Um, I went right from uh, undergrad to, to Emerson College for my MFA, and again had really great, you know, really great teachers. And then also what I found at Emerson, which I had been. Like, in some ways, I think for me, graduate school was sort of like college um, because I was getting, you know, we were all sort of in the same boat uh, in in one way. You know, even though we'd come to writing for different reasons and for different places, we were all sort of in the same boat. There was a really wonderful sense of community. Um, I made a lot of really good friends who are still among my closest friends today. And... Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, the sense of community there was just, just huge. And, and again, you know, just great teachers wrote a ton. Uh, and then my thesis, uh, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, ended up becoming my first book. Okay. So uh, some th- like one of the things you said there in particular with regard to community and making good friends in graduate school, like MFA programs get a lot of shit. I feel like people bag on them a lot. They uh, blame them for... Um, you know, uh, generating really homogenous work from, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you hear all the complaints yeah. about what MFA programs do, but I had a similar experience, uh, at the level of community because, you know, you can take a lot of uh, fiction writing workshops and English classes in college and you can read a bunch of books at that level, but it's not until you get into, um, a room with people who are really going to go for it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like where you're, Absolutely. Not, yeah. a, not until then did I ever feel like I was really among my tribe of strange people. <laughs> you know, it was a great... yeah. It, it absolutely felt like um, finding finding my tribe for sure. And also, I mean, I think like I, you know, I really am just sort of boggled at you know my mind is boggled by so much of the MFA criticism. I mean, particularly like the idea that you go into this program. And, you know, you leave all writing the same, uh, which so does not reflect my experience. I mean, I felt like all our, like the teachers we had taught in really different ways, emphasized different things. And all, like, even when I think of my close friends, our writing is really different. And if anything got more different as we sort of became more ourselves over the course of our graduate study, as opposed to becoming like more similar, 
um, which is kind of, you know, the, the common like charge leveled against MFA programs. Well, and I should say too, that you don't necessarily have to get that community or those, uh, build those friendships or, or be in that kind of room within the context of a graduate program. It just so happens that like, that's one of the, one of the main ways to do it, if not the main yeah. way. And um, no, not the main way at all. Yeah. And the, and the joke that I always make, um, which is, I think, uh, you know, half rooted in truth is that there's just no post-war economy for everybody to go crash, you know, or maybe there is, but nobody wants to crash it because it's in some like, you know, hellish place. <laughs> but, yeah. I, you know, you think back to like earlier times and people are like, you know, knocking around Europe for like a thousand dollars a year. And it's like, well, yeah. if, if we had that option, maybe we wouldn't all be hanging out on the campus of, you know, whatever college, but Nowadays, that's it. If you want, to, especially, I mean, because there's some funding available and um, in a lot of these programs, and it gives you kind of a, a safe harbor to go check out for a while and just focus on books. Yeah, it was definitely a safe harbor for me. Although, if I could have knocked around Europe, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> right, me. Too. I'm kind of bitter. In fact, that I had to settle for graduate school. But what? I know it's like wait when you when you compare when you compare it's like three years of concentrated literary study in Boston to knocking around Europe for a few years. You're like, hmm, maybe I did not get the better end of this, no. better end of this deal. Just like sitting in like Gertrude Stein's like parlor. With yeah. Like, you know, it's also, totally. it's, you know, it's easy to romanticize that, but, um, okay. So you were in graduate school and you, I mean, and you strike me as somebody who, um, like this was, this is your thing. And it is, it sounds like it's your thing in a way that it's maybe, not my thing. This has been a concern of mine lately that I don't necessarily know what my thing is or like what my particular thing is within the realm of literature. But like, mm -hmm. it seems like you were like duck to water. Like these short story writers are, you know, in particular, like are just blowing my mind. This is what I want to learn how to do. And then, you know, then you were doing it. Like you went to graduate school. Were you on a schedule writing? You know, like, it, did you have like a really disciplined approach or was it something that you could do in bursts? I did have a very disciplined approach when I got to graduate school. If anything, I would say my approach has almost gotten a little less disciplined. I think, you know, now I'm more inclined to, as opposed to write every day, is that I work really intensely when I'm working hard on something, and then I take I take breaks. Um, but I but I did have a very disciplined approach. I mean, I, I really I wrote every day, um, and and so so again. Did you, did you write at the same time every day, or was it just when you could do it? I think usually in the mornings, and I still write in the mornings. I should say I'm not really a morning person. So when I, now when I say morning, I mean like 10 a.m. Um, but but I had it, you know, in some ways because I was also um, I was I was in school. I was I was also working part time, and so I got up. Um, you know, I would get up at like six or seven in the morning to write if that's if that's what I needed to do. And and I and and I was also teaching at some point. So I had I mean I had a lot of work to do that that took up my time. So if if I needed to get up at like six AM to generate new pages, I, I would absolutely I would absolutely do that. Um so I always tried to write in the morning, but I would go, you know, I would go home and, and write too at night. Um I mean I certainly, you know, again had a really tight uh group of friends and, and we socialized a lot. But but I you know, skipped out on a lot of things because just, I really, you know, wanted to work as much as, as much as possible. You're focused. I think very, yes, very, very focused. Um, and was my characterization of you earlier, uh, correct? Like, is this your thing? Like, you know, it in your bones and it's like that simple and clear, or is that an overstatement? 
it's not an overstatement. I do know it in my bones. Fiction, fiction, it, fiction is my jam. Um, and in some ways, you know, it's really, I mean, save for like, I mean, obviously being like a human being in the world and having, you know, other interests and friends and, um, and relationships and, you know, being a good friend and a good daughter and a good sister and a good spouse and all of those things. I mean, really, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. It is the only thing that I've ever wanted to do. And, and, you know, I mean, it's such, I think like for me, the saddest thing sort of looking back is to not know what you love. Um, that's my, and when that's I, my problem. <laughs> oh man. I want to hear more about, okay. I want to hear more about what you have to say on this. But I think for me, like when I realized when, it, when I found, I mean, it was like falling in love. You know what I mean? When you like meet that person and you're like, that is my person. And it has this, can have this really, um, I think like clarifying effect on your whole life. And that's what I met fiction before, you know, before I met my husband, but that's what meeting fiction was like for me. Like this, is my thing. This like, is what I love. Like I'm, I'm, imag- just... I'm imagining the song Dreamweaver playing as you're reading Amy Hill. Yeah, right. Like that's, you know, um, so it did have this sort of clarifying effect on the whole for me. So tell me, I'm, so I'm interested in hearing um, about this from your perspective. So when you say like you're not sure if it's my thing, can, can you talk more about what you, what do you mean by that? Just my nerd level. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like I don't read... Like I have a really weird like reading taste. I'm not like super, 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 super into fiction in the way that I think maybe you need to be to write it at the level that I would want to write it at. And it's it's not that I'm not – I know that I'm creative, but I just don't know where I fit. It's hard to say. It's like I can't figure out quite what my thing is. And I think that's part mm-hmm. of what this whole podcast project has been about is to talk to writers and to try to like suss, you know, suss things out with them and get feedback and – I don't know. It's it's hard to put a finger on. Like the kind of book that, yeah. I, that I like and the kind of book that I want to write, um, you know, there are elements of it out there in books that I read and I can certainly enjoy, uh, you know, a variety of books, both fiction and non, but I don't know. You know, sometimes I worry that like, my God, I'm not this kind of person who's like reading like a book a day and, you know, uh, writing with like a smile on my face. Cause like for me, it's really hard work. Like it's really but- Okay, but here's my question for that. Like, I wonder how much of that is sort of literary mythology. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm actually, I I mean, I love reading, but I'm a really slow reader. So, so, I mean, I don't read a book, you know, I probably maybe read like two books a month just because I I tend to read it at a slower, um, a slower pace. And certainly, you know, I feel like the times when I'm writing with a smile on my face, even though I love it, um, I mean, I think... That, that sort of actually happens kind of infrequently because it's I love it, but I find it to be like enormously hard work okay but are you um, are you talented like is it, is it easier for you than it is for like ninety nine percent of people like you know what I'm saying like do you have a sense of your own i don't talent? know i don't i don't i mean I think it's just I feel that talent is almost um i mean for me personally it's kind of it's it's irrelevant you know because it's just something that I do feel like i i i I am driven to do it um so, you know, one hopes to, to get better and to, you know, aspire to be better always. But but I think for me, um, in some ways that's not really you know, I didn't I didn't start doing it because I was like, Hey, I think I might be talented or good at this. Um, I started doing it just because it was, you know, um again, it was just it was sort of like falling in love and I felt sort of driven to driven to pursue it. But yeah, I do but even like the writers I know who I think are so 
you know, just have this insane natural talent where, you know, writing amazing fiction must be like breathing for them. I mean, they talk about how hard it is um, and how often they're sort of on the brink of giving up, you know, again, even though, even despite really, really loving it. So, so I know, I mean, so I do wonder, I, and I think I see that in my undergraduate students, especially where they think, um, which is why I was saying I was I was actually, you know, in hindsight, I'm really grateful to have parents and teachers early on who emphasize the sort of just the, the sheer, like, labor um, of, of the thing. Because I think I have students who are like, oh, well, if you're a great writer or you have the potential to be a great writer, you have this sort of innate literary genius. And, you know, I think they're thinking of how creativity is represented in, in like, movies where you sit down and the music swells <laughs> and you start typing furiously and then you know, hours pass and you have this like rough masterpiece in front of you. But in my experience, that's just not how it works at all. So how many drafts do you do? Like how quickly do you get a first draft of like you did your novel? Like, can you give us like a quick overview of how that, um, you know, and we should say too, your novel's coming out what next year? Um, it's coming out in 2015, winter 2015 right now is the, the approximate, uh, pub season okay so you write that in how long like is this like a 10-year labor or is this something where it was like six month first draft within a year done kind of thing well i wrote um i wrote the first draft pretty quickly and that's sort of my process with stories i tend to write um I tend to write stories really quickly. So for me, like a, a quote unquote quick story might be like a couple weeks to a month. And then my whole process is revision. So I'm really, you know, in, in the revision process, I'm really sort of excavating the story, figuring out, you know, what is the story really about? What's, what's sort of at the core, the core of it. Um, and, and I, and I approached when I wrote the first draft of my novel, this is like in 2008, this is quite a while ago, I approached it in a similar way where I just would blew through a first draft really quickly, kind of in some ways in first drafts, I like to think as little as possible um, and just follow kind of intuitive leaps where, wherever they're, they're leading me. However, what I failed to take into account was that to have uh, a 20 page mess on your hands is very, very different than having like a 200 page or 300 page mess <laughs> on your hands. Sure. So it took me, you know, it took me years to just sort of parse what I had written um, and to, and to excavate the story and to figure out, you know, what it was about um, and the kind, the kind of book I really wanted to write. And so, um, so I'm, I'm approaching final edits, you know, right now, but it really, uh, and certainly I took breaks. I took breaks because I was busy teaching a lot. I took breaks, um, I took breaks to work on the stories that are in the Isle of Youth. So it wasn't just from 2008 till now, just like on straight labor, but, uh, but it took, you know, a long, long time just to kind of figure out the book in a basic way. Okay. So publication, um, you know, you said that your, uh, first collection was your thesis at Emerson. And then, uh, you know, talk about getting an agent and then getting it into print uh, for the first time and now, um, you know, being published by FSG. So, like, you, you're moving on up. Things are going well for you, right? Um, I Yeah, it's been, it's been like, a, a really, um, like, a crazy good year. Uh, I, I also, um, you know, I got 
I got married this year. My husband had a book come out this year. I had a book come out this year. We were like just mm-hmm. expecting to be like struck down by lightning at any <laughs> any moment. Congratulations um, uh, on yeah, that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, and so um, yeah, so I had my first book with uh, with the Zinc Books, and they have a an award that they do called the Zinc Prize, and it's for a work in progress and a literary community service project. And so um, I submitted about half the stories and um, what the world will look like when all the water leaves us. And my community service project was to um, be a volunteer teacher in this program in uh, that Penn New England does that brings um, writers to teach uh, creative writing to inmates. And so that was my community service project. And so I was lucky enough to get the design prize. And then um, they made an offer on the collection. And right around the same time, I had um, signed with, with an agent. So all those things kind of converged at, at once. Um, so, and, and, and what, they was were, it, was it a difficult hunt for an agent? Was it difficult to, I mean, obviously you wound up at Dezenk with the first book, but I mean, did you get, did you suffer through lots of rejections, uh, before then? I, yeah, it's weird. I mean, my first, my, my, it was sort of like a, a weirdly untraditional path in that, um, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like a big hunt because I had sent, I should say with the Design Prize publication isn't formally attached to it. So my expectation was not that they were going to make an offer on the collection. Um, and then when that happened, it was like, oh, this is like this is amazing. And it seems like, like, I think it's supposed to be like much, much harder than this. Um, <laughs> so, and, and the, my agent was referred to me by, um, I knew I was friends with a writer that she represented. And so that, you know, again, thankfully was, was relatively, came about relatively easily. Um, you know, I have, I have so many, I, I mean, most people I know, it's like the process of finding an agent, the process of finding a publisher. It was a really, it was, it was a long, you know, it was a long road. So I, I feel. Well, but see, this is it. This enormously is the, fortunate. No, it's because this is your thing. This is it. This is, this is what happens when a person finds their thing. <laughs> I don't see, I don't think that's true though because I know so many people for whom like this is very much their thing and it's still you know it's still it's hard. But so, the thing is, is it might be um, like it might be like eighty seven percent their thing because like, I think it's my thing like maybe seventy two percent. But when it's a hundred percent your thing, then it's your thing, and those are the people that I don't know. I, I'm developing theories on this, but it's complicated. I worry about it. I think it's I think it's enviable um, that you're you're so locked in. You know, and and maybe I used to be, and then I'm, you know, now I'm not. I don't know how many people listening, you know, maybe everyone feels that it's their thing, you know, or or they're, that's the majority, and and I'm in the minority. But I have concerns about that. Clearly, I got to work it out. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you sound like this is something that you're that you're wrestling I wrestling am. with. I'm gonna have to. Yeah. I need to find a therapist. Just lie down and talk it out. Yeah, and say what? Tell me what is what is? Listen to me and tell me what is my thing. I just want. I do. I want to know with clarity. I think I used to have more assurances, but I want to know what my thing is with clarity. And it's you know, I want to know, and I don't know how you get there. Maybe and like you just sort of intuitively knew, right? Um. I yeah, I did. I mean, I just it was just yeah. Again, that sense that like I don't even you know reading short fiction and again not really like coming from a background where this was, I'd encountered this sort of literature before. It was just sort of like, I didn't even know quite what this is, but this sense that like, I have got to find a way to, to do this, whatever, whatever it is. My God. What if, yeah, um, it's fascinating to think about. I feel like I'm being really neurotic. <laughs> but I don't, but you know, but who knows? Like ask me in like 
if you do, I don't know, do you do follow-up podcasts? Ask me in five or ten years, and maybe I'll be like, oh, Brad, I was so wrong. I have no idea what my thing yeah, is Yeah, I was going to say, by the time we get off this call, you're going to be like, I have no idea what my thing is anymore. Yeah, maybe like <laughs> I haven't thought about it that carefully, and now thanks to you questioning yourself, I'm going to start to question and be like, is it really 100% my thing, or is it only 90% my thing? I, yeah. don't, I don't know. I think you should stay, keep your tunnel vision. Keep it like that. Okay. When, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. It's that simple, really. You know, there, you don't have to make these things as complicated as I make them. That's part of my problem. Um, let me ask you a, a, a question that I should probably ask everybody that I talk to on this show. Okay. Uh, why do you do this? Like, you know, I know it's, I know you love it and I know that, uh, it's your thing, but do you know why you write these stories? Um, is it for you? Are you trying to communicate with a big audience? Do you want to be famous? Do you, do you, are you trying to get rich from your writing? Uh, why do you do it? Uh, well, actually, publishing True Story Collections back-to-back is part of an elaborate plan to get as rich <laughs> as possible as quickly as possible. Um, you know, people said that this is not the way to get rich, but I say just wait. And that, you know, um, obviously, yeah, publishing back-to-back story collections, I would say, to get um, to get rich quick was not, uh, was not the biggest the biggest motivator. Um, I do think that it goes... So, okay, backtrack a little bit. I, re- I recently read this really great um, compilation of, of essays um, or profiles, author profiles uh, in How to Read a Novelist, which is this new book that John Friedman did. Yeah, and some, I thought somebody, one... Somebody sent that to me. I should have him on the Yeah. Show. I thought one thing that was really interesting about a lot of the profiles... Um, was that they could kind of, they honed in on sort of a, a fracturing moment um, in in the author's lives. And in sometimes it was something like really tragic, like William T. Goldman, um, you know, his sister, his sister drowned. Um, sure. Sometimes it was a guest. Um, and then sometimes it was more kind of kind of classic coming of age. Like there's this great bit um, about Jeffrey Eugenides, you know, going um, on this sort of spiritual quest and kind of failing at that self-sacrifice. Uh, but this this moment in their lives where they felt like they were sort of irrevocably changed, something in their something in their DNA was kind of altered. And and even though I mean Freeman certainly doesn't say this explicitly, and authors don't say this explicitly, but what I took from that was that it was that fracturing moment was sort of the place that they were always speaking from mm-hmm. when they were when they were writing. And so I think, you know, certainly for me, I think that that even though in some ways, I, in many ways, I feel light years away from the person who like ate lunch on her own in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> you're always, you're that, always going to be on that toilet. <laughs> Right, like, but in some ways, I think that I, like there's a little part of me. It's like a shadow that follows you around. Sure. There's a little part of me that will always be that person. Um, and and so, and I think that there's if you if you sort of evolved away from a vision of yourself that was like less successful than your you know the current incarnation, I think that that's there's always that fear of regression too that somehow you'll wind up back in that place. So I think that I, I that for me was a, is kind of fracturing moment those those adolescent years and and I think that that in some ways is the place that I'm speaking from when I'm writing. Um, so to communicate that isolation, that alienation, what that felt like for me, um, 
And, and I think sort of, again, you know, I think we often tend to write toward our fears. Um, and so I'm writing toward that fear of somehow finding myself in that place again. Um, so I think on an internal level, that's certainly a motivator for me. And I think, you know, even though I mean, certainly hope um, what I write can be something that some readers will connect with. I mean, I do think I am really doing it for myself in that way. You know, when I write, I'm, again, I'm responding to that internal drive. I'm not really thinking of, you know, of the reader or, or wanting to appeal to a certain group of readers. And I think the other reason why I do it is because, um, you know, I have a story in the Isle of Youth that's set in Antarctica. Um, I have a story that's from the perspective of a group of, you know, adolescents, uh, bank robbers who are kind of roaming around the, the Midwest. And, you know, though I had my troubles, I was not uh, actually spending my teenage years robbing banks. You might be surprised. <laughs> you might be surprised to learn. So I think also there's this tremendous joy in getting to live a million different lives, getting to go a million different places without without ever sort of leaving, leaving my desk. And it's a way to kind of... Um, you know, you get to you get to be you, um, but you also get to sort of escape yourself and transcend yourself in some ways at the same time. And so for me, that's what writing is about. That seems like a really eloquent way of putting it, like a really eloquent, like two-tiered explanation, <clears throat> maybe as good as I've heard in a while. And uh, especially the part about the fracturing moment, because I completely agree with you on that. And I find myself talking to authors on this program and I'm always sort of searching for that moment when I talk to them because I'm like, it's got to be there. What was it? <laughs> you know, like, what, right. What, like what, you what, cannot have been like totally. Yeah. yeah you're but... not, you're not doing this because everything went perfectly. Like what the hell right. happened to you? And you know, some writers I think uh, resist talking about it. Most writers are really open about it and, and can point to it. Um, yeah. You know? And so I think that's very interesting and it's often like a grief experience or it's some sort of, it's some sort of trauma, you know, where, and it's usually something that drives a person inward and, um, involves a, a feeling of isolation, um, and, and a feeling of not being well understood, you know, and I, that certainly is how I feel, you know, like, uh, looking back is that you're trying to, you're driven to try to articulate your vision because at some particular moment in your life that, that I guess was like, you know, a swirl of, uh, hormones and, whatever else, you know, cause adolescence seems to also be where that fracturing moment tends to happen. Um, right, 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 right. Yeah. Because you, you sort of, you, you break from the child self and you move toward the adult self, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like. You know, do, do you know of any writers? Cause I'm, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I wonder, are there writers that like had a fracturing moment later in life and then like became writers out of that? I guess that's got to have happened. You know, and I'm having a little trouble thinking off the top of my head, but I think, um, I actually, I have had a reason. I'm looking at the spine of the book right now. It is such, it's such, a, it's such a great book. Um, but I, I can remember. I think there were a few profiles where people, the authors, were were writing. You know, they'd already become writers, but there was a fracturing moment of some kind that occurred later, and it changed the way they wrote and it changed what they wrote. So it was sort of like they were already writers, but this is what moved them toward producing the kind of work that we think is like I iconic of, of that, of that writer. Okay. So here's, <clears throat> here's yet another like quasi embarrassing admission of my own, but like, I sometimes think to myself like, okay, like I just, what I need is some sort of like cataclysm. Like that's what I need. <laughs> and then I will find like, you know, suddenly like shed whatever like neurotic uh, fears or insecurities or confusions that are, um, you know, shackling me. And will be suddenly, you know, I will suddenly explode into some period of creativity where 
um, you know, I will realize my thing. Like, do, have you ever courted thoughts like that where it's like, I feel like young male writers, it's like, I need to go to war. Like I must go, yeah. I must go stare down like, the moonscape of Afghanistan in order to like, you know, I, I have not, I have not courted that. And again, I think for me, like I, I had, so, I was so like miserable, uh, in my younger years when I finally realized what it felt like to be happy, I was like, Oh my God, like I will do anything to hold on to this feeling. <laughs> this is like so much better. And, and you know, the thing is like, I write, um, I do not write well when I'm immersed in emotional turmoil. It's just for one thing, it takes a lot of energy um, and it's distracting for me. So, um, so I actually do my best to cultivate a life that is, you know, I mean, again, I really love to travel. Like I love sort of adventure in kind of in the general sense, but um, you know, so I mean, I love a life that is adventurous, but also a life that is just sort of stable and even keel and happy. Um, I, I don't, I don't love like a lot of drama and, and chaos. Um, this, this and sounds, and this again, sounds, possibly sounds so uh, much, it sounds so much healthier <laughs> <laughs> than, actively, so I, than yeah. actively wishing for like an apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. But I know sometimes I think though, if you just feel, if you feel stuck, it's kind of like there's, I'm not saying that Brad, that you feel stuck, but I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking aloud here. But if you, I think sometimes I have been in that place though, where for every reason I felt a little stuck, there's that sense that you just want to do something to get yourself unstuck. Um, and sometimes like, even if it's like something that would create, right, this sort of tidal wave of, of drama or chaos in your own life, you're just like, oh, but I like need something to get me unstuck so badly that this actually seems like an appealing option. Yes. Like, I, I feel like I want to like narrowly survive something and then emerge with wisdom <laughs> or like, you know, I don't know. It's all these, it's almost like delusions of grandeur and, uh, have, it's silliness. Um, have you seen the movie, the game with Sean Penn and Michael Douglas? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, I think that like, obviously someone in your life needs to set up that <laughs> sort of situation for you. And then much like Michael Douglas, you will, you will emerge, uh, a different, a different person. That is like the most sadistic. If you really, Forever change. if you break that movie down, I mean, I, I love that movie in a way, but like when you on, on repeat viewings, it just strikes me like there's something sort of comical about how sadistic it is. It's like the meanest. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. It's the meanest birthday present ever. And it's like, I'm like, I'm sorry. If one of my siblings did that to me, I would be really fucking pissed off about it. You oh, know, it's like, like, it'd be a permanent break. I don't care about this spiritual, <laughs> like the spiritual epiphany I just had aside, like I'm never speaking to you again. <laughs> yeah. Like I, yeah. Yes, like I, right. I am. My spiritual epiphany was like not profound enough to ever be able to forgive you for doing putting me through this. Yeah, forgiveness of you is not a part of this. So yeah, not a part at all. Well, I uh, I didn't have like a full blown spiritual epiphany, but I did have like I feel like I had some you know good a good string of like miniature epiphanies talking with you. It's been really fun. Uh, I'm a little bit hopped up on cold medicine, so I hope that uh, I hope that that came through during the conversation. <laughs> Uh, that explains a lot, it, actually. I'm sorry, what? I, that explains a lot that you're – I'm totally kidding, no, that you're hot up on cold medicine. I am, though. I mean, these cold medicines, it's like basically just amphetamines. I don't know what they are. No, it's true. I actually can't take them because they make me feel like kind of crazy. Yeah, well, 
well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Really, that explains our whole conversation. Yeah, I just want to put it into context. I feel like that needs to go on the record. But uh, Laura, it's been super fun uh, speaking with you. Congratulations on the new collection uh, with FSG. And, um, you know, uh, congratulations as well on the novel that should be rolling out in 2015. Yeah, thank you so much, Brad. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right, everybody, that is Laura Vandenberg. You can find her online at lauravandenberg.com. She has a Tumblr, and you can also find her on Twitter, at L. Vandenberg. Her book, once again, is called The Isle of Youth, and it is out there now from FSG Originals. Uh, Thanks as well to Victoria Patterson. Go get her book while you're at it. It's called The Peerless Four. It is a novel published by Counterpoint. And uh, be sure to check out the Nervous Breakdown book club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Go get that app, the free official Other People app, so you can uh, access premium content and the full archives. And uh, what else is there? I feel like I'm obsessed with logistics today. And oh, check out the show on YouTube. Listen to a podcast on YouTube. That does not mean that I'm going to be on video. I'm not videotaping these things. I can't do that. I'm not ready yet. I feel like I would freeze up. And plus just the technology of the whole thing. I just can't do that right now. I've got enough on my plate. So uh, you can listen to the podcast on YouTube, I think, as of now. If that's a thing. Do people listen to podcasts on YouTube? (laughs) Apparently so, because I've been told to do this by uh, podcasting authorities. Please remember that Goya died in Bordeaux and that John Maynard Keynes was born in the year that Karl Marx died. That's it for now. Uh, I hope you had fun. I hope you enjoyed this uh, double feature. I will be back on Wednesday with another episode of this program. Uh, I will have another episode in public for you because uh, that's what I do here. I have episodes.